And I started doing deep research and then traveling the world, cooking in Israel and Singapore, going to India, and realizing that when rice comes into the table, everybody gets excited. And we're the only culture when rice comes to the table, we're like, oh, okay, cool. But when you're in India and biryani comes to the table, people are like, woo, what's in the biryani? Or you're in Singapore, like, what's the... What's the seafood and the rice? Are you in Israel, like in the shuk, like red rice and bean? Like, you know, people go, they geek out. They forget that there's all this other stuff on the table. And I was like, okay, let me try to celebrate that. Let me try to figure this out. So field trip stands for all the, all the rice fields I've been to. Trips are for the trips I've taken around the world to visit rice fields. there, and welcome to Creative License, where we dive into what makes creative people successful and immerse ourselves in that process. I'm your host, Alex Perlman. Ever since J.J. Johnson graduated from the world-renowned Culinary Institute of America, he seemed destined to work in the world of fine dining, swanky hotel restaurants, Michelin star spots, and that's exactly what he did. J.J. cultivated his path from storied eateries like Tribeca Grill, Jane, and the Morgan Stanley Executive Dining Room to eventually becoming the executive chef at The Cecil, which was named the best new restaurant in America by Esquire. He was rolling. His career was taking off. This was everything he'd ever dreamed of growing up as a boy in the Poconos. Except it didn't feel right. J.J. decided he needed to choose a new path and opened up an unassuming, fast-casual rice bowl shop in Harlem called Field Trip, which features menu items spanning the globe. Their motto is Rice is Culture and draws on the concept that rice connects people all over the planet through all walks of life. A chef that was named to Forbes and Zagat's 30 Under 30 traded a life cooking the most elegant, beautiful meals to feeding his local neighborhood with affordable, quick, but also absolutely delicious bowls, all to make a difference in his community and help usher in a new future for food, which I found damn refreshing. It took JJ's courage, conviction, and creativity to turn that idea into a flourishing business, serving up some of the most diverse cuisine New York City has to offer. JJ, I've heard you do a lot of shorter form interviews so many times, you know, in places like CBS, the Today Show, stuff like that, but never an extended conversation. So I'm, I'm really excited about talking with you today. Um, let, let's start just first off. What made you fall in love with food in the first place? I mean, I, I fell in love with food in my grandma's kitchen. I grew up in my grandma's kitchen at a young age. She used to play really loud salsa music. Yeah. she had sous chefs, her, her, my great, great aunt. And it, it, it was like, wow, is food this fun? Is food this vibrant? Like when I look back in life. So that, that's where, that's where food started for me. And the best times, uh, in my family's moments were, was around the large table. We would have great dinners, amazing conversations, heated ones, you know, you know, like, you know, what family is. And you know, my, my grandfather sold his house in Long Island. My mom's sister, my aunt Lisa, kind of packed up alongside, moved to Pennsylvania, and we all lived four blocks away from each other. My dad left Harlem. He didn't want us to grow up in Harlem in the in the 80s and the 90s, and, you know, New York at that time. 
And he commuted back and forth to New York City. I don't know how he did it, two hours each way, four hours in total. He was dedicated to making sure his family had the life he envisioned. And that that's how that's how I got started. At seven or eight, I told my family, I told my mom, my dad, and everybody I was gonna be a chef. I saw a commercial for Culinary Suit of America. And I've been I've been riding, I rode that wave ever since. I never I never left that wave. And kind of like looking back in life as a kid, I think my parents, like my family really cultivated me. They really supported me. It's similar to like, a, you know, an elite AAU basketball player. They were like, okay, you want to go work in a, you want to be a dishwasher? Go ahead. You want to go cook at this event? Go ahead. You want to make um, us our fam birthday dinner? Go ahead. Even if it burns, nobody ever really got upset. I was like, oh, you made a lasagna, but you burned it. I'm like, okay, so what do we eat? Like if they, it was like, they were really just, they were hundred percent vested. Even to this moment in my career, my family is hundred percent vested, but that throughout my whole career, as I moved into New York and started cooking, I lived with my aunt uh, in East Harlem. Uh, and then with a, a couple other aunts throughout Harlem and they're all were invested in my year, my, in my adult life. So I thank them uh, because they really held me down as I became an adult and really following my dream. That support seems incredibly important at the beginning. I got the same thing from my parents and my family when they were like, hey, you want to be a sports broadcaster? Great, go do it. You know, like they didn't make me follow in the path of being a, a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, an accountant or, or really anything else. It was kind of, hey, go do what you want to do. Could you have done it without that support? And, and how did that kind of like manifest itself in your success? I think support, right, comes in many different ways, right? The challenging of support, why do you want to do this? That was my mother, she challenged it, right? I'm talking about family as a working class family that doesn't want their children to be working class folks, right? So why would you, why, a chef, that's below working class, right? What are you talking about? Like, I got my master's degree, we work really hard for you, well, you know, so you have that. It's also that type of support. And what I did as a kid, I used my parents in very different realms. I knew my mom was better in these things, so I used her for support. My dad was better in these things, I used him for support. I kind of go through life the same way, channeling different people for support, like what they're an expert in. Um, but yeah, when I went to culinary school, everybody dropped me off at culinary school Uncle Donald, Aunt Lisa, my grandfather, my parents, my sister. I even think Aunt Jeannie came too. I think they even came. Like I, it was like a big deal. You'd have thought I was like you know I was like the number one football player in the world. Like talking to you about it right now. Yeah, but you're going to the, really, the Harvard of schools to to be a chef. So it it really is kind of similar though in some ways. Really similar in a certain way. So yeah, everybody was there. Um, and then when I when I was going and even when I wanted to quit culinary school, there's plenty of times I wanted to quit culinary school. Uh, my, and my dad was like, you're not going to quit. Come on, man. You've been talking about cooking your whole life. What are you talking about? <laughs> what made you want to quit? It was hard. Like, I was one of the few only black kids. It was an environment that was very different for me, very Eurocentric. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania, so it's not like this was like some culture shock of like being around a lot of white kids. Like, no, this is what I grew up in, but it was, it was a very different culture shock. I wasn't good, and I wasn't good at cooking the, the, that style. Everybody was always better than me. A chef used to say, Johnson, if your haircuts are as good as your knife cuts, you'd be really good, right? Because the precision of like going to the barbershop. So, you know, there was a lot of hard times. I failed my cooking practical. Certified master chef failed me on a cooking practical. 
you don't have to call, supposed to go on externship, internship, you have to call mom, like, yeah, so mom, I wanna let you know, I need another $800 cause I feel the cooking practical. Um, you know, so, but those moments actually made me who I was. Like, it's never going to be easy. It's always gonna be hard in some type of regard. People are always gonna beat you up. They're always gonna doubt you. It could be family, friends, people you don't know. Um, but my, yeah, my, my folks are always there to support me. My dad is one of my biggest supporters. And I call my parents, my, my sister played like very division one basketball. She played overseas. And uh, I call them like the parents that show up at every game. So like, you know, even when I was, while cooking in New York City, my dad would pick one day regardless what restaurant I was in. And he would come sit at the bar, eat the food, support people would know who he was. So it, it really, really interesting process. Like looking back and talking to you about it. That's, that's so cool. When did it all start to click for you in the kitchen? I would say the first moment of like, all right, I'm about to really like figure this out. Like I have this entrepreneur spirit, this drive of like, I, I can do this. I was working at Morgan Stanley Executive Dining Room, 1585 Broadway. I call it like the secret kitchen in New York City, like beautiful stainless steel. We change the menu every day. Zach Friedman was a chef, came from Chantrell, which was like legendary New York City restaurants. So I was learning from Zach. I was a sous chef. And... I miss the sound of like the ticket machine in the kitchen. Like there's a noise that comes from the ticket machine. I like miss that sound. I was like, I got to figure this out. So I was applying for all these jobs to be an executive sous chef, a CDC to like go run an Italian restaurant, go run an American restaurant, go do this. I really, nobody was really calling me out. That was like the era of like when Chop first started, I was always a guy that was the backup guy. Like, yo, we're going to call you. If we call you by six o'clock in the morning, you know, you come through or like wait in the green room. I'll pay you a hundred dollars. You ain't in the green room. And uh, so I did that for a little bit. And then actually one of the producers on Chopped said to me, hey, there's this new show coming out on Bravo. I think you'll be great for it called Rocco's Dinner Party. And I was kind of over that kind of circuit. Like I'm cooking on TV to prove myself. Like I went to freaking culinary school. Like I worked at really good restaurants. Like I put a lot of hours in. I cooked in my grandma's kitchen. So I was like, let me go do this. Went on Rocco's dinner party, got selected, and um, the theme was speakeasy. So with speakeasy reminded me of my southern grandma's kitchen, Harlem, telling me all these stories about speakeasies in Harlem. So I cooked this like speakeasy theme. Marcus Samuelson was a judge, Mike, Michael K., rest in peace, Michael K. Williams, Rocco, I, I remember, uh, Cho. And I won the episode, and then I then then people started reaching out to me. A gentleman named Alexander Smalls reached out to me, said, "Yo, man, do you want to come to Ghana to cook uh, American themed dinners with me?" And then Tao Group calls me and like, "Yo, we got a sous chef job for you," and I'm like, "Okay, great." So like, I'm in this moment in my career where like the road actually splits. It's like, all right, do I go to the right to Ghana, or do I do the traditional stuff, go to the left to Tao Group? Working this, like, I know I'm going to get a check. It's going to be a busy restaurant. It was at Laurent Turin's uh, Arlington Steakhouse. And I was like, I'm going to go this untraditional route. I'm going to go to Ghana. I've never been. People say it's like the best place on earth. You'll find yourself typically through the slave castles. And luckily enough, I found myself through food. It reminded me of, like, why, why wasn't my family telling me that I was this kid of the African diaspora, that I was mixed with all this flavor? Why haven't I been incorporating all this in my, my cooking? Or I've been incorporating all this in my cooking, but people have no idea what I'm talking about. They think, what is up? So that was the first hurrah moment. 
And then I came back with Alexander and I literally would go in his kitchen and I would cook. I didn't have a job yet when they opened the Cecil. I was actually the last guy to get hired. They hired a different chef from Minton's first. I was the last guy to get hired. People thought I was crazy. Like, why do you keep going to this dude's house? I was like, well, what else am I going to do? Like, what, what, what? I'm, I'm putting it all on the line. And uh, then he gave me a job. I was trying out dishes that I tried in his kitchen at Morgan Stanley Executive Dining. Imagine that, right? Like, these big exact CEOs are eating peri-peri <laughs> prawns before it went on the menu. Had, had they ever had anything like that? Or, or definitely not in that setting, right? No, not in that setting. It was interesting because, you know, we would draw up the menu a couple week, a week in advance. So I would slide these things in. They'd be like, yo, Jay, what's this, man? I'm like, yeah, we can reword it different. What you want to call it? Like, it's a spicy tomato sauce. Like, taste it, you know? And that's how I was able to test things out. It, it was a cool process, right? But that was the first aha moment for me. And then I would say the second one was I was working at the Cecil. I poured out all my blood, my sweat and tears. And um, at one point I was like, okay, if I'm working this hard for somebody, what about if I work this hard for myself? And obviously that's what you're doing. But I want to go back just just one second to what was kind of the, the final straw? You might have answered it already, but the final straw that you were like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I want to go out on my own. I want to try to make something different than, than what I had been doing my entire professional life because you had a lot of stops. Yeah, yeah I had a lot of stops. I think when, you, when, you, when you're a chef, you're, you're trying to hone a craft, right? To all my chef friends out there, to every chef out there, right? Some of us are just able to hone a craft, right? Make the perfect pasta, the best risotto. And that's, that's what we're taught. That's amazing. And then there's a sector of chefs that have that honed craft that actually are able to create some type of style of food or interpretation or strong point of view, right? That's another sector of, of chefs, right? And um, I was very fortunate that I was a part of that process when we started creating the menu at the Cecil, right? I was a part of creating these dishes with Alexander and saying, yo, this needs to be on the menu. Check this out, right? Or JJ, is that, is that the first time that you got that authority or that ability to try to cultivate a menu on your own? Yeah, the first time that it was like, hey, if this menu is going to be successful, it's on my shoulders. Yeah, 100%. Before that, I had input and it was like, chef, like, all right, great. And then maybe made some tweaks or touches. Uh, but this is the first time that, that was the first time in my career that I was able to have final input. Creatively, what was that like for you getting that opportunity to kind of go through a menu and say, here's not only what I want to cook, right? But what I also think people are going to like and they're going to want to buy and it'll be well-reviewed and, and everything else that comes with being an executive chef. That's a good question. For me, it was a, it was a, it was a great moment. It was like, hey, somebody's betting on me. Wow, somebody really believes that I can do this job. That's what first came to mind. And I remember talking to Dick Parsons and Alexander, you know, the owners of the Cecil. Many people think I own, I own the place. I think they only owned it because I put like, I, literally my blood probably still goes through, the, my veins are still like attached to it. But I was like, hey guys, if this doesn't work out, if it doesn't work out with me, like the food I put out, like it's all good. If you want to let me go, I totally get it. Just, I just want to let you know, I'm putting it all out there for you guys. Uh, and I thank you for the opportunity. You've parlayed it into, I mean, not only your, your own menu and being an executive chef, but now an owner of an incredible restaurant idea that now has three locations, Field Trip in Harlem, which, by the way, 
I've been to a few times and I was there last week. Oh, thanks. I absolutely love Field Trip. I think it, it, it's such a great idea. And now there's a location in Rockefeller Center and, and in Queens where you serve rice bowls inspired by recipes from from all over the world. And, and your motto there is rice is culture. I've heard you talk about it many, many times. But for those that don't know, what exactly do you mean by that? So Field Trip is a rice bowl shop. The majority of the rice come directly from the farm. Freshly milled rice grains. I know some people are probably like, what, is, what does he mean, freshly milled? So no grain is bleached or enriched. I have this kind of debate with folks. They're like, bleached and enriched grains are good for you. It's like, uh, they're a part of rice making, but we could talk about that another time. But everything is affordable, under 14 bucks. And the motto, our tagline, rice is culture, is basically that everybody grew up on a rice dish or a grain of rice. Doesn't matter where you're from in the world or who you are, you grew up on a rice dish. You can vividly say, Oh, that's my dish, or I love this rice dish. And if you want to learn about a culture, you can utilize, you can use rice as that center point to guide you through an unknown culture that you don't know. So I believe rice is one of the greatest ingredients in the world. It's the most disrespected ingredient here in the United States. And we're just trying to bring back a true rice culture. Who do you think disrespects rice and, and why do they do it? Oh, wow. We, we could go real deep here, Alex. Um, <laughs> well, just to give like a, like, like a really, you know, just a pinpoint, I think a great show to watch that can give you a little bit of history on, on rice is High on the Hog. There's an episode on Netflix. Rice was part of, the, part of the gold rush era, right? So like most people believe that people made money from gold and cotton. Rice was just making just as much money or more than gold and cotton in the era. But when, when enslaved people were free, when enslaved black people were free, they didn't want to grow rice anymore unless they got the land. And people didn't want to give them, white people didn't want to give them land. So the rice industry collapsed. And that's where they went back to this practicing of parboiled and enriched rice, which comes from West African people too. Right. And then that started and you can read something about like gold rice where they were bleaching rice gold to get people to try to think it was Carolina gold rice and everybody was getting sick from it. So the rice culture has been disrespected because when you hear people talk about rice, they're like, okay, get the good rice. It's brown rice. It's like, no, like regular freshly milled rice, like Carolina gold rice freshly milled is the rice we all should consume. It should be in all of our households. It should be in the counter, in the in the refrigeration department of every supermarket, right? That should be the foundation of the rice we consume here. The same way India consumes basmati rice, Southeast Asia consumes sticky rice, right? Chinese consume their style of white rice, the glamorina, oriza, white rice. Japanese have 200 grains of rice. We don't have that. People believe we never have a rice grain that, you know, we should, we, everything is important. Like, no, Carolina gold rice is our rice and we, everybody in the world should, that should be your baseline. But it's a, it's a lost grain. It's coming back. We're, I would say we're part of the second wave of it, right? We, we, we purchase almost about 2000 pounds of Carolina gold rice a, a month from two different farms. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to bring back, I, I, I hope one day that people can go to the supermarket and get freshly milled rice in the supermarket. That's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. When did you start to become, maybe obsessed isn't the right word, but so interested, cool. <laughs> so, so interested in in rice and and its impact on society and in culture? So I read this book called. I came back from Ghana and I got. I was like trying to figure out what, like what's the what's the rice from West Africa that I can cook. Started doing some research. 
I read this book called Black Rice. I was like, yo, I never heard of this. Like, and it was talking about two trails of rice, the West African trail of rice and the Asian trail of rice and the history. And I was cooking at this place in Tennessee called Blackberry Farm, phenomenal place. If you, if you ever want somebody to treat you somewhere or you want to treat somebody, somebody really special that's not the Caribbean, I recommend it, Blackberry Farm, it's beautiful. And a gentleman named Glenn Roberts, who owns Anson Mills, I was always trying to get in contact with him, super hard guy to get in contact with. And I'm walking in to do a cooking demo and he's walking out. And I'm like, I'm like Glenn, 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 trying to chase him down, we sit on a bench. And I was like, hey, I'm trying to learn about this, like, grain called Glamorima. And he, like, looked up, like, what, you, what do you know about Glamorima? I'm like, I'm in research, and it seems like all the arrows point to you. And he's a southerner, white dude. And he was like, we got a cooking demo. If we start talking, it's going to take too long. But here, take my number. Give me your phone. Take my number. And through the weekend, we talk about it, and then me and Glenn start talking about the rice, and he started laying out what he calls the mother grains of the world, that there's all these mother grains that stem from these other rices that we consume. And I started doing deep research and then traveling the world, cooking in Israel and Singapore, going to India, and realizing that when rice comes into the table, everybody gets excited. And we're the only culture when rice comes to the table, we're like, oh, okay, cool. I'd rather have French fries. Exactly. <laughs> but when you're an Indian, biryani comes to the table. People are like, "Woo, what's in the biryani? Or you're in Singapore, like, what's the what's the seafood in the rice? Or you're in Israel, like, in the shook, like, red rice and bean. Like, you know, people go, they geek out. They forget that there's all this other stuff on the table. And I was like, okay, let me try to celebrate that. Let me try to figure this out. Um, so field trip stands for all the, all the rice fields I've been to. Trips are for the trips I've taken around the world to visit rice fields. So cool. And I don't know if there's anybody else that has gone in in depth and it's not just like you celebrate that so much in in your cooking and and you can see it in every dish and field trip. They come from all over the world. They're all different types of cuisines. Can, Can you take me through kind of creating a new dish for field trip and what that process is like for you? It's a big process. I, you know, mo- most chefs take ingredients, ingredients like, okay, tomatoes are in season. And what really goes good with tomatoes and that winds up on, on the menu? I take the people. So I'm like, ooh, do I want to cook something from Brazil, from the Afro coast of Brazil? And then I'm like, okay, what do the people of the Afro coast of Brazil eat? Oh, they eat black beans. They eat this. They do this. Then I start developing a dish around it, right? What may be ingredients that are in season? Or I'm like, oh, let's go to Caribbean. Uh... Let's go to Jamaica. We're going to do rice and peas, okay? What goes good? Oxtails, carrots, right? So we take basically the grain, the rice grain, and we develop some. So it's like really interesting. A lot of people have been asking me recently on a field trip, like, why you don't have anything Latino on the menu? Like, your grandmother's Puerto Rican. Like, you're not going to honor her? And I'm like, you know, I've been working on what is the right dish to put on the field trip menu that is that. And now it's like, okay, I kind of got it. So that will come probably out in the fall late summer, early fall that we'll rock out with. But yeah, we take the rice grain and then we celebrate that with the people. I think you'll see more things, seasonality, things around rice grains, maybe grains you've never seen before, heirloom grains from farms. I mean, a a rice farmer contacts me every month from somewhere in the world or the country that they want to put their rice on field trips menu. 
I would say there's one rice farmer I've never been able to get in contact with that I'm I'm I'm, I'm truly want to learn. These Laowanese rice farmers in West Virginia that are growing like traditional Laowanese sticky rice in West Virginia and just selling it at farmers markets are like the hardest people to get in contact with. It's like I gotta fly into West Virginia to holler at them. But yeah, that that's how it works. And you know, we hope that when you come the field trip. That you're truly on a field trip, like you're like, oh, I can get, I can get that bowl with curry sauce, or, oh, they got jollof rice. Let me see, is it Ghanaian or Nigerian jollof? Or, they got basmati, you know, they have basmati. Oh, that's what's up. I'm from India, right? Or I miss India, so I'm gonna go to a field trip, you know. So we hope to touch on a lot. You know, we we pretty much say you take you to West Africa, America, China, uh, and probably back, and a couple stops in between, and and that's the focus. It's just something that I think is is so unique in bringing you on a journey. It's, you know, usually if you go to an Italian restaurant, even like, let's just take the fast casual sector, you know, you go to uh, Chipotle or, you know, you go to Cava or something, you you know what you're going to get, right? You know what type of cuisine you're going to get, you know, going in, but this is, there's so many different options and there's so many different places that you can experience. You could literally go in and be like, what am I in the mood for? Not only do I want salmon or shrimp, but I also want something from Africa or from Asia. It's just, it, it, it's incredible. It's a very, it, 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 you know, through my creative process, it's been hard to like, how do you articulate that? Because people are like, what's a rice bowl shop? Like, there's a lot of bowl places. It's like, uh, yeah, people use bowls as the vessel. How do you do that in a four-minute talk show segment is kind of what, what I've right. been wondering <laughs> when, you, when, when, when I've seen you. It's just like... You know, they'll they'll give you like five minutes and, and they're expecting you to cook something and explain your whole ethos during it. I'm like, this is an impossible ask of this guy. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. It's fun. It keeps you it keeps your blood going. This one, we're able to have like a really uh, solid conversation around some really good stuff. But yeah, at Field Trip, I hope to change the way people consume food. Also in communities that don't get a better for you product or good for you product. And also in markets that potentially might have things like kava or, I mean, I say chipotle because they're affordable, like cheaper than us, but in other places where people are eating at salad joints or other bowl-ish restaurants uh, that they come to us and say, oh, wow, that's affordable. And then they eat it and go, oh my goodness, how is how does that cost that amount of money? And David Chang has said it a lot. He's like, hold on, JJ. The rice you're serving here is the same rice I would serve at my restaurant or somebody else would serve at their restaurant would cost $35, $40. How are you doing that, right? What's going on here? That, that's so my question. I, right, we're just, we're just figuring out how to do it at an you know, affordable rate. Why, why, why can't people get the good stuff at a, at a good price? Why does the good stuff have to be at a really low price point? And also, like we're supporting farmers, sustainability, all type of things. And we as a company should get better, right? Like, I I hope that at one point where we get our proteins from, we can point and say, oh, we got proteins from this farm or we're getting it from this supplier, right? It should be very transparent of how people eat and it shouldn't influx the price, right? But I don't control the prices these days, so. <laughs> no, no, I, I wish you did, honestly. How do you do it though? I mean, you, you said it a little bit, but it, is it, is it eating in? Does it eat into your profit margin? Is it just kind of making um, a significant decision that you're going to go with maybe a, a social good over making more money? I, how does that? How does that work? How does that thought process play out? I think it's a little bit of both, right? I don't. I I can't go through society without a social good. Like I, that rides on my chest. 
I believe in working with good people. I, you know, I believe in doing good or what I believe is good. And then I think everything's in a give and take area. So that's how I look at it. So yeah, the, the, the rice might be expensive, but maybe the vessel goes in, maybe the bag I give you, maybe the fork is cheap, you know, looking at like what, what really matters to us uh, and then what matters to our consumer? Like, does it matter if the, the fork is a cheap fork? I don't think so, right? No, I don't care about getting it out of like a, a paper or cardboard bowl because this stuff is delicious. Correct. For me, it's like I'd rather the stuff in the bowl be meaningful. So that that's how we look at it. <laughs> but I think people want socially good for you brands, right? Like, let, let's not mistake it. McDonald's is a socially good brand, right? They started the Ronald McDonald Foundation to help kids, Right. So maybe the food that they put together isn't really actually good for you. They're getting better. Right. Because they realize people care about it. But they're like one of the greatest companies in the world. Me and you could go. You could be in Dallas and I could be in New Mexico. We can order the McFlurry, whatever, if it's available, whatever it is at the same time. And it'd be in the same vessel, look the same, taste the same. Like for us, that's what we, that's what we strive for, right? So like as we expand, it's like when you get that beef bowl, is it going to be the same rice, the same beef, the same wok vegetables? Is it going to be packaged the same way? That's really hard to do, and that's what we're working on. Yeah, that's what I, I want to know next is your, your vision for field trip heading forward. Um, I read that you want to open eight more at this point. I mean, the goal is to open eight more, but you know, these prices out here, Alex, they're crazy. The supply chain ain't no joke. <laughs> supply chain ain't no joke. I raised that money before the supply chain popped up. Um, yeah, the goal is to open up a couple locate, couple more locations. Uh, outside of Columbia University is a goal. Washington Heights is a goal. It's up to my wife, uh, Upper East Side, by the hospital. So we're looking at over there. The Bronx is important to me. Brooklyn's important to me. I think the Bronx, from a landscape of like how people eat and what they have access to, we, we want to show people that, like, let's go into the Bronx and we'll take a risk. So, uh, and not like a risk on, let, let me rephrase that, not like a risk on, like, will people eat from us? Like a risk on, like, hey, guys, I'm going to show you what it's like when you take a risk, right? And look at the, the output. So I've come to the realization that, like, big box brands do, like, reverse engineering marketing to folks so they don't believe you make money in those markets, rural America and urban markets, where it's their biggest markets, and they're, that's how they become the companies they become. So, you know, we'll focus on that, which in the goal is to probably take 1% of market share from people in those markets as we grow, and I'll build field trips slow and steady, and we'll have, hopefully we'll have a breakout year where you'll see 10 or 15 pop up, but that won't happen right now, but we'll, we'll grow slow and steady. We'll, we'll get one open by the end of 22, hopefully roll into two by 23, and then maybe one by 24 and then get back and get back to people's pockets ask them to write big checks. <laughs> well, th- I mean, that that's obviously part of it. But what makes you so confident that this can catch on in any market, any area of New York City? Could it be something that eventually maybe maybe even if not nationally at first, maybe regionally could become successful? When I look at new brands, like these new emerging brands, some that have went public recently, some that have 60, 70, 80 units, their market share is one type of market. That's all they have. 
And for us, been really fortunate to have Harlem and Rockefeller Center, two different types of markets, right? So Rockefeller Center gives us like one percenters and working class folks, construction people coming through, MTA workers, police officers, right? Tourists. Harlem gives us true heart of New York City, like the people, the backbone of New York, moms with kids, nannies, guys that hang out on the block. Upper West Siders who take a, a little bit of a, a trip up to Harlem, like I did. <laughs> exactly, right? So when you look at that, you're like, hold on. So every time I open Uptown, I can open the one downtown. Like I, if I wanted to, I could go Brookfield Place. I could go and go Columbia University. I can go Washington Heights. I can go Upper East Side Hospital. There's not many brands that can do that in, in the space. So like when I'm looking at market research, Rockefeller Center taught us like people love the, they like the food. It's relatable f- to them. Yeah, they might pick a salad because that's, that's like their local restaurant, I call it. Right. And they're familiar with it. They've been around a lot longer than us. But at one point, we, we hope that we start to rub off on, on people and they are eating also field trip is a complete meal. You're getting a starch, you're getting a protein, you're getting a vegetable for lunch or for dinner. And most of these other brands are just for lunch. They're not, they're not a dinner brand. And we do really good during dinner time in the Harlem market. So like that also then maybe translates into the suburbs, soccer moms, right? Dads commuting, picking up dinners for their family. So those are the kind of things that are going through my mind. Hope to grow into become a true New York brand or, you know, New York brand and then figure out how to become a regional brand. Which part of the region we go to, I'm not sure. Jersey's been knocking on our door a lot lately. So um, we might go that route. And I can't leave Pennsylvania behind. So I got to open up one in my hometown at least uh, before my friends come for keep coming at me. <laughs> when you talk about opening all these different places up, you have to use creativity in a different way, right? It's not in the kitchen. It's not designing a menu. Now it's trying to gain funding to raise capital. You, you need that to open up all these new places. How do you use your creativity to try to win over someone that is maybe potentially looking to invest? I give everybody my, my secret. One of the secrets is uh, um, when I worked for Dick Parsons, ex-CEO of Time Warner Citibank, when he was owner of Cecil, he used to tell me, JJ, you got to figure out what people need. I'm like, what do you mean? People need food. People need, he's like, no, 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 no. Like if somebody's asking you to do a deal with them, you have to figure out why, what value you're bringing them. Sure. If you can figure that out, then you're golden because then you know that's your value and you can start to pl- plug that into the right places along the way. So I'm sure trying to figure out what the value is that I bring. I don't know. Sometimes it's like kind of obvious or sometimes I'll think of the value and I'll give that as a proposition to developers or to investment people or to landlords. Um, and then the, the other part about it is like from like a landscape perspective in a growth of a brand after a while, like don't you want to see people of color grow a brand, women grow brands, different style of foods grow Right over the last fifty years, we've seen the same thing over and over and over. Like we can, we know what's coming next, right? Um, and the same people that are funding those things keep are just it's, it rotates. They funded that, it did extremely well. They find the next one, they fund that. So it's getting people to feel a little bit uncomfortable and being comfortable and betting on potentially something new that could change the the way the the, the way people consume food. 
uh, and that's for me or what, kind of whatever business it is in. I mean, I love the Nike story, right? The guy that walked around from table to table when he booked at restaurants and tried to get people to invest in his shoe. Or, you know, uh, Elon Musk, right, with the battery. You know, like, you every Bezo out of his garage, right? Like, everybody has, every big player in the game has a similar style of story before they get people to really uh, buy in. How big my story will be, I'll leave it in the, in the hands of God. Well, we will find that out eventually. We talk about the future of food, and I think it's it really got me thinking. David Chang's show, the, the Next Thing You Eat, really got me thinking about what is the future of food and how can I be a part of that? Certainly, that's what you're trying to do. In 10, 15, 20 years, how do you hope that, that Field Trip has influenced that and, and tried to answer that question? You know, it's interesting you say that. Like, um, I look back. I cooked at the Cecil 2013, was it 2022? So nine years ago, look back, and I'm like, you see tons of people cooking food of their diaspora, right? Not just of the African diaspora, but of all different diasporas. I mean, that's because of Cecil, right? Uh, what, what we did there. But for Field Trip, it's bigger because it actually gets to touch more people's bellies. So hopefully people earn respect on the culture and food, right? Like they'll look at they'll look at culture and food and say, I'm not going to put a price tag on this. If they say that's how much it costs for those tacos or that curry sauce or that roti, I'm going to pay that price for it. And hopefully that's what Field Trip teaches people is to really respect culture, understand how it impacts the social chain, uh, the well-being of folks. And to bring back a rice a rice industry that's been lost for a really long time. Now, JJ, you're not only a chef, but you've already won a James Beard Award for your book Between Harlem and Heaven, which uh, you mentioned Alexander Smalls. You co-authored that with him. You're also up at this point for New York State Chef for another James Beard. So fingers crossed that uh, that that we get good news there I as cry. well. I cry. I I cried when I found out I was on the finals list. Like New York State is extremely one of the hardest categories to win. Um, and some of the best chefs in the world have come through New York State. So I'm glad that I'm a nominee next to my fellow friends. Some of them are friends and peers and uh, I'm excited and uh, just manifest with me. Yeah, so, uh, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I certainly am. And I'm sure everybody listening to this as well, if they didn't know you have, have fallen in love with you. Um, you have your show Just Eats with Chef JJ on Clio TV, finished four seasons. Was the media world something that you always wanted to explore or saw maybe as an avenue to helping you get your eventual message about food out there into the open? You know, as a kid, I used to walk up and down the hallways of uh, high school and be like, I'm going to be better than Emerald Lagasse. Like, I'm going to be. And people be like, yeah, man, nobody cares about cooking. Yeah, but you don't have your catchphrase. I mean, you have a motto, but you don't have a catchphrase. Right. There, no, I don't there, have, there's I don't no have BAM yet. No, I haven't <laughs> developed that one yet. That's a hard one. <laughs> He killed that. It was actually interesting because my guidance counselor from high school reached out to me recently when she heard I was nominated for made nominee for James Beard Award. She was like, "Oh my God, everything you've talked about when you were everything you wanted to live for, you are living it. Like you should be proud of yourself." I'm like, "Mrs. Garvey, thanks. I appreciate you still." <laughs> Twenty years later, <laughs> right? But yeah, the media stuff, you know. I'm thankful that show's done with the women-led production company called Powerhouse Productions on a brand new network called Clio, funded by TV One. Uh, thankful for them. And 
you know, I think TV is a great marketing tool for people to understand, especially if you have a restaurant that it allows people to come to eat at your restaurant. You're pushing them to come to your restaurant so they learn about you on TV and they're like, oh, they he has a restaurant, I'm gonna go check it out. And watching the OGs of this, that really worked well for players. Bobby Flay, right? Wolfgang, Marcus Samuelson, David Chang, right? They use it as a marketing tool to really touch folks. So, I, you know, that's how I look at it. I'm able to express myself through food. I have fun doing it. it it's a good time. And, you know, I, I treat TV very, uh, people are like, oh, yeah, so when's season five coming? I'm like, listen, if it gets renewed, I'm there. If it doesn't, I'll be a little bummed. But, you know, that, you know that's a vessel for me. The focus for me has always been restaurants, cooking, uh, how to get the word out. But, yeah, I, I, I like being on TV. I think I give a very unique point of view about food and culture and, and how people consume stuff since I've been in a lot of places in the world. And Just Eat's Four Seasons, like, this is unreal. Four Seasons of Just Eat's, like, cooking on TV, my own show, it's, it's still, it still hasn't hit me yet. Yeah, it's a, it's a great show, too. Um, a lot of influences, obviously, in your cooking, but you're a father as well. Uh, when you became a father up to now, does, does that impact your creative philosophy in the kitchen or at least maybe what you try to do in terms of the future of food, leaving the world a better place, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, the impact for me on food with my kids, I have twins, everybody, they're four and a half years old, a boy and a girl. Alex, I used to be like this guy that used to get like my friends like that were like better off than me. I'd be like really mad, like, oh, this is nonsense. And then one day I was like, hold on, but their one of their parents worked really hard or their grandparent worked really hard, right, to get them to this point. So for me, it's like, you know, my grandfather worked really hard to get our family to a point. I feel like I have this legacy to keep on going, to build for the next. So like hopefully my kids, if they want to run field trip, they'll run field trip. If they want to collect, you know, some type of percentage from, you know, they'll collect the percentage if it gets to that <laughs> far, right? But the goal is, yes, is like the, the world should need, the world for me needs to be progressive. And hopefully when they're going out to eat with their friends, they're able to say, oh, look, oh, let's go get what's that from food? Oh, it's really, uh, but it should be everywhere and it should be accepted. Uh, and hopefully that's the imprint that I leave for them to understand is like culture and food go hand in hand. We're going to travel the world. We're going to eat food. We're going to go to different restaurants. Uh, my, my biggest thing is, you know, your, your yuck is somebody's yum. So we're not going to run around here screaming yucks, right? We're going to, we're going to respect the food for what it is. And, and you'll learn about it and you'll decide what you want to consume and what, what will be your go-to stuff. Because it, it's scary out there, right? Global warming, cultivation of meat. There's like all these things going on that many people aren't paying attention to. Food system is going to be a very different place in five years. Not, not even in 10 or 20 years. In five years, it's not going to be the same eco food system that we all know that we're eating actually right now. JJ, I want to just switch gears a little bit as we wrap up. Uh, I consider myself a bit of a home chef. I have friends that that do as well, of course. Um, what are some of the most important things to focus on in the kitchen for those that are listening that want to get a little bit better, maybe want to do something a little bit faster? I tell everybody you need the right tools for the right job. So you got to start there. You need the right tools for the right job. So you know, invest in a beautiful knife block. Start there, and it gives you all the knives you need. Maybe six, seven knives. Nice little knife block. Doesn't need to cost four, five hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, hundred fifty dollars. Nice knife block. Wooden cutting board. Right. Keep your knife sharp. Go on Yelp or look online. There's somebody in your community that sharpens knives. Get pay them to sharpen your knives. To keep. So start there. 
And then you need the right vessel. You need a cast iron pan. You need a saute pan. You need sheet trays. You need a wooden spoon. And the easiest way to cook is gathering your ingredients beforehand. Don't be that person in the kitchen like, okay, the recipe calls for a tomato. I go to the fridge to get a tomato. Oh, the recipe calls for feta cheese. No. Get everything on that sheet tray. Lay it out. Have everything in front of you. And that's going to help you go through the recipes a lot quicker. Take the time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to gather ingredients. That's why my wife always makes these jokes. She's like, you can just whip things up quick. I'm like, yeah, because I take everything out the fridge. I lay it out for me. I bang it out. put everything back in the fridge. And, and, and I'm done in 20-minute, 30-minute meals. Certainly good advice. If you prep before, it saves oh, you go. You so go much time. Yeah. But I think a lot of people wish that they prepped a little bit quicker. You know, they're not just like slicing onions like you just bam, 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 bam. It takes a little bit more time. But that comes with experience, right? Exactly. Last thing for you, JJ, this has been so much fun, but we can look past anything culinary or in the kitchen with cooking, but any advice that you have to young creators that might be listening that, that want to do something in any field? You got to believe in a product before you believe in anything else, right? So like I tell young chef, believe in a food, don't worry about TV, right? Like if the food ain't good, it don't matter. Make sure the product is tight put the work in, keep those blinders on. Cause like you'll get caught up. I mean, it happens to me. Like I look right, I look left sometimes and it starts to sway you off your yellow brick road. Keep those blinders on and try to stay focused on your goal. And all that other stuff will come at the right time. Or maybe that's just not meant for you. It's okay. You have a path, right? And you'll figure out the path, but I get it. It gets hard sometimes when you get looked over. You're like, why did they call me for that? I'm just as good or better. Uh, but just keep believing in the product and it'll work itself out. That's such good advice. JJ, this is so insightful. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us. Really, this was this was a blast, a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. It was a great time hanging with you. And uh, next time you come to Field Trip, let me know so we can uh, eat a salmon or a beef bowl together. No, there's no doubt about that. Thanks again. Creative License is created, hosted, podcasted, podcasted, obviously. Let's try that again. Creative License is created, hosted, produced, and edited by Alex Perlman with inspiration and guidance from Hannah Rosenthal. Graphic design by Carrie Lindgren. Our thanks once again to JJ Johnson for lending his insight and experiences this week. Follow JJ on Instagram and Twitter at ChefJJ or head to his website, ChefJJ.co. You can find Creative License on Twitter at CLPod and follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at AR Perlman. Shoot me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.